0: The story is that Pascal is discussing the concept of God and the supernatural with Louis XIV. And at one point, Louis the, Pascal is a Roman Catholic. Louis XIV is a nominal Roman Catholic, but who is not necessarily noted for his deep piety. And he says to Pascal, Look, you tell me about God and the supernatural. Show me one miracle in front of my eyes. Show me one thing in front of my eyes that I can know that there is something outside of the natural order. That I can know that there is something supernatural. And Pascal was said to have answered, the Jews, Your Majesty.
1: The Bible relates that when Moses experienced his first communication from God, the voice which he heard emanated from a bush, which burned, yet was not consumed by the flames. The Midrash identifies this guise as a symbol for the Jewish people. Just as the bush burns and is not consumed, so will the Jewish people persist throughout the ages, a flame with the fire of God from within, seared by the torch of persecution from without, and yet they will continue to endure. The remarkable survival of the Jews through the millennia of their unique history has been an enigma to all observers. After the Holocaust of World War II, a number of emaciated survivors made their way back to their hometowns. The local inhabitants who had occupied their homes and property gaped in disbelief at the ghostly sight and joined the chorus of history. What? Are there yet more Jews? They're indestructible. How can the rationalist explain the incomparable course of Jewish history? A string of coincidences? A streak of stubbornness. A casual student might suffice with that were it not for one crucial added factor that defies such a pat explanation. The Torah and the prophetic texts foresaw this very unnatural course of events and documented them 3,000 years ago. Rabbi Moti Berger, a senior lecturer at Jerusalem's Eshatorah College of Jewish Studies and North American Discovery Programs, examines the enigma of Jewish history in the following lecture taped live at a Discovery Seminar in Jerusalem. And now Rabbi Berger begins.
0: Today's class is entitled Seven Wonders of Jewish History. The point of the class is trying to deal with certain aspects of Jewish history that show us design. Can we see an order that tells us something? We know when we think about it that all the decisions we make are based on our ability to be able to determine the difference between order and randomness. When we put somebody on trial and look at what is the evidence that this person is guilty. Are those random series of events which tell us nothing about this crime or does it tell us something about pointing in a direction? Everything that we decide is an ability to measure randomness versus design. And what we'd like to do is look at that aspect in Jewish history. We'd like to look at it in the light of both the uniqueness of Jewish history, the strange things that happen in Jewish history, and the concept of calling a design from the beginning of Jewish history. The idea that the Bible, the Torah, and the prophets laid out not only the laws that would govern the Jewish people, but what would happen in their history. The authors of the Bible made a claim of prophecy, that God told them to tell us what the basic order of Jewish history would be, that we would make choices, and that the results would be X, Y, or Z. And what we'd like to do is look at these two things in combination, the history of the Jewish people in terms of its uniqueness, and the prophecies that were outlined at the beginning of Jewish history and see whether we would expect these events to take place in Jewish history, and also whether we would have expected if we believe that the Torah was just a human document written by human beings 2,000 or 3,000 years ago, whether the human beings writing at that, that time could have expected these things to have taken place. Now, what we're going to be looking at is two things. First of all, we're going to be looking at statements in the Jewish Bible. Statements of prophecy telling us, the authors are telling us that God told them these event these things would take place. And then look at a whether they took place. And B, whether we would expect these things to have happened if we were writing this book 3,000 years ago based on what human beings can know. And keep in mind it's the two things in combination that we're looking at. Uniqueness and prophecy. Each one alone wouldn't be all that powerful. If you can show me a people that have this strange unique history, you could chalk it down to a fluke. Things just happen. Who knows why? But if you put it together with prophecy, the idea that what happened to these people were told to us those things would happen thousands of years before, you can't lay it down to fluke anymore. If, on the other hand, a people have a a normal history, but prophecies that lays out their normal history, you could say, well, what prophecy means is that their wise people sat down and figured out what are the general trends of history. And from those general (laughs) trends, they figured out what would happen to this people. And so it's not that God told them, they figured it out themselves. But if you have prophecy together with uniqueness, then there's no lines of history, because what happens to these people are... Significantly different than what happens to others.
1: So we're going to look at these two things in tandem In approaching this question, Rabbi Berger will be referring to seven categories Seven streams of prophecy as he calls them which appear time and again in the scriptural sources expressed by different prophets in different generations Indicating their understanding of the general direction Jewish history would take
0: Standing off on page 84 we have category number one the eternal nation The statement throughout the Bible is that the Jewish people have the central mission of all nations, and that central mission is to transmit to the rest of humanity the fact that we were created by a God, and that the purpose of existence is for mankind to connect to the infinite. And that because the Jewish people were offered this connection to God, and because we are a nation, we're bearing this message, and we have to bear it for all time, for all humanity, And therefore, we're eternal. Nothing can cause this nation to cease to exist. Well, if you believe in a God-given Bible and that we're bearing a message for humanity, it would make sense that we would have an eternal mission. What about if we don't have that connection? What if we don't understand God gave the Torah? Where would that that understanding come from? So on page A4, we look at a few references. From the biblical narrative on page four, paragraph one at the very beginning genesis chapter 17 god is talking to abraham and says i will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations an eternal covenant to be your god and the god of your descendants after you the understanding is that the covenant is forever well that's all well and good when the covenant is made but what about when things get bad after all Maybe the people won't be keeping the conditions of this this covenant. What happens then? In paragraph 2, that's from chapter 26 in Leviticus, which talks about all the things that will befall the Jewish people if they move away from keeping the Torah. But the Bible says, Yet even so, even while they are in their enemy's land, I will not reject or spurn them, lest, by wiping them out, I make void my covenant with them, for I am their God. I will remember them because of the covenant I made with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt under the very eyes of the Gentiles, that I might be their God. Even in bad times when the people have moved away from Torah and terrible things are happening to them, but the one thing that does not come to an end is this covenant between God and Israel, eternal covenant. The various other paragraphs which you could look through later on pages A4 and A5 talk about the eternity of the connection between God and the Jews. And because an eternal covenant means the covenant is forever, it also means the Jewish people have to be forget forever. That's why, for example, paragraph 6 says, from Jeremiah 31, says, Thus says the Lord, who establishes the sun to light the day, the laws of the moon and stars to light the night, who stirs up the sea into roaring waves, whose name is the Lord of hosts. If these natural laws should ever give way before me, says God, only then shall the offspring of Israel cease to be a nation before me for all time. That god says i who created the sun moon and stars, say if ever these natural laws give way so too the nation of israel will cease to be people before me for all time covenant is eternal which means the nation continues to exist
1: no matter what it is not only students of the bible nor is it only jews who have noticed this stubborn indestructibility the phenomenon is an obvious one and several gentile scholars saw it as cause for comment It's noticed
0: not only by us, it's noticed by other writers outside of Judaism. We turn to page A6. You'll find, just read a couple of those. Paragraph one called Concerning the Jews by Mark Twain. Twain wrote, the Egyptian, the Babylonian and the Persian rose, filled this planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise and they're gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burnt out, and they sit in twilight now, or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? That question is a very important one because Mark Twain was an agnostic, and it's very unusual for an agnostic to ask a question about the secrets of immortality. Leo Tolstoy, on the other hand, was a believing Christian. He had less of a problem. At the bottom of of section three, the last paragraph, he writes, the Jew is the emblem of eternity. He whom neither slaughter nor torture of thousands of years could destroy. He whom neither fire nor sword nor inquisition was able to wipe off the face of the earth. He was the first to produce the oracles of a god he who has been for so long the guardian of prophecy, and who transmitted it to the rest of the world, such a nation cannot be destroyed. The Jew is as everlasting as is eternity itself. Both writers at the end of the 19th century, writing about the eternity of the Jews, it's not that the Jew, only the Jews who notice something strange about Jewish survival. Indeed, not only the friends of the Jews notice something strange, but even our enemies, has anyone ever uh, heard of a book called "The Protocols of the Elders of Zion?" It was written in the late 1800s. It was written as a forgery purported to be the minutes of secret Jewish meetings to control the world. According to this, this book, rabbis get together. Rabbis and Jewish leaders get together every hundred years to plot out the next hundred years of Jewish history, in such a way as to control the world. You know people wonder, where did they get this horrible idea? Well, we all have to face the reality. Where do you think they get it? because it's not only our friends but our enemies notice this strange concept of the continuity of the Jews being like a cat with ninety-nine lives just always ending up on its feet. It's not just a canard because then other peoples would have those books written against them too. The idea that they can take advantage of this concept of the fact that whatever happens the Jews end up surviving and going on and it would almost seem logical if you think about it that if you don't believe that God has anything to do with it that the Jews themselves are plotting this out perhaps even more absurd It's perhaps the least likely probability that things just happen that way. If God isn't controlling it, somebody
1: clearly is. In an effort to unravel this mystery of survival, Rabbi Berger examines the definition of a nation. What causes a group of individuals to coalesce into a national unit? And what elements cause it to lose its identity and disintegrate? Historians tell us that a nation the word nation means a people who are
0: bound together by having certain things in common. And I'd like to ask you what things does a people have to have in common to be a nation? Land in common? Language in common? It's almost like dimensional. Land, language, now give it a depth. Land, language and history. And it seems that all the others fall into a subfunction of those things existing. Land, language, and history in common are what people have in order to be a nation. So now, let's look at it in terms of the Jews. Do the Jewish people have a land in common? We have a land in theory, but it's really not in common, because for the vast majority of Jewish history, the vast majority of Jews never lived here. Do we have a language in common? Yes and no. Yeah, we have a language theoretically Hebrew, but for the vast majority of our history, most Jews didn't speak it. And do we have a history in common? Again, somewhat, you know, the farther back we go, the more common. If we go back to our Jewish ancestors 2,000 years ago, they are probably all here, right? But the closer we get to our own period of time, the less commonality we get of history. The Jews of England, of Morocco, the Far East. The Jewish people has less of land, language, and history in common than any other nation that we can think of. And yet we are the eternal nation, the continues surviving. Those are the three elements that are seen to create commonality and yet we have less of those than any other nation you could think of we're still here so let's look at the flip side what causes national disintegration again I don't mean to say that there are only three but we can spot three basic causes national identity to disintegrate number one you're conquered by a stronger power all people have a pride in their identity It's not just a particular group like Jews. All people have a pride in self. And so, number one, a group is conquered. They maintain their differences from the majority culture, the bigger culture that conquered them. And what is therefore the second result after conquest? Persecution and assimilation. Sociologically we refer to the term as the dislike of the unlike. The majority culture looks at the minority culture and says, what? They're still maintaining their differences? You know, they're insulting us. They think they're better than us. We'll show them, and because we have the power, they, miss, they somehow mistreat them, whether it's mild or severe, it differs a lot. But ultimately, there's a manifestation called the dislike of the unlike. And conquered is discriminated against. How does that discrimination lead to assimilation? Somebody in the minority culture tries to figu- figure out. Hey, I think I know why we're being persecuted. The dislike of the unlike. Therefore, I'm gonna drop my differences and become more like the majority and see how I'm treated. And so they drop their differences. And what happens when they drop the differences? They're treated better. And other people say, hey, look, this guy's treated better. So we're going to drop our differences. The more they drop their differences, the better they're treated. The better they're treated, the more people drop their differences until the differences are gone, the national identity is gone, assimilated out. And the persecution is gone, gone entirely as well. Nobody asks a question of hey, how come there is no such thing? You have all these anti Jewish groups and organizations. Anybody have here of the anti Babylonian League of North America? People complaining of too much Ammonite influence in the government, you know, the Moabites are running all the banks. Every one of those groups came under persecution at one time or another. But because of that, the differences were dropped. They become more acceptable the more the differences are. Until they they're accepted totally, persecution has gone, so is the identity.
1: But when it comes to the Jews, the natural historic order seems to boomerang and have the absolute opposite effect, as Rabbi Berger explains.
0: Now let's look back just in the last 1,500 years. In Jewish terms, that's called modern history, not the biblical period. The last 1,500 years, spot the areas where the Jews have lived in significantly large numbers, where they made up their minds in one way or another to drop their differences and become, become more, more like the majority culture. Spain. Germany, meaning more like Europe, Central Europe, Western Europe. Leave America out of this now. We're trying to analyze whole chapters, you know, talking about America in these terms. You've met Rabbi Appel already, right? Rabbi Appel mentioned in this context, to talk about America in the same way is like the story of the man who fell off the Empire State Building and halfway down he says, well, so far so good. you can't tell. But when we look at major areas where Jews have lived and dropped their differences, Spain, in the Middle Ages, Germany, uh, the past uh, 100 years prior to the Holocaust, the Jewish people, more than any time before, said, we're going to drop our differences, we're going to accept more of what the majority culture does. And what happens to those communities? We know, in general, when you look at the sociological principle of the dislike of the unlike, what should have happened is a greater acceptance. What we see there is a total destruction of those communities, either dispersal, chasing out, or physical destruction. Where does that come from? With every other group, the more they drop the differences, the more they're accepted. Picture, if you will, just for anyone who's read Nazi propaganda or Mein Kampf, we say that Nazi anti-Semitism is a natural culmination of European anti-Semitism. But in a way, it's a total reverse. Until the middle 1800s, all anti-Semitism was based on saying we hate the Jews because they are different. They worship differently, they dress differently, they eat differently, they don't want to marry among us. We hate them because of their differences. Along come the 1800s, where many huge numbers of Jews, especially in Central Europe and Germany, say, forget it, That we're being given an opportunity to assimilate and join those societies, we are going to drop our differences, rewrite our Judaism in order to allow us to do whatever is necessary to become like the majority culture. We're no longer a chosen people, it's this civilization that's chosen, it's this civilization that determines for us what we should be, and do a significant element of dropping their differences. And within just a few decades of that seeming mass decision of so many Jews, along comes a brand new anti-Semitism that does not say we hate the Jews because of their maintaining their differences, but we hate the Jews even worse because they're trying to become the same. Those of you who read Mind Kampf, what's the hatred? They're sneaking up behind us. They're changing their names. They're taking our names. They're speaking our language. They're buying our businesses. They're marrying our daughters, worst of all. For 1,500 years, European civilization says we hate the Jews because they're maintaining differences. The Jews come along and says we're going to drop our differences, and along comes a much more virulent anti-Semitism says we hate
1: them even worse because they're trying to drop the differences. This diversion from the normal historic pattern may be a curiosity when taken by itself, but becomes much more significant when we note that this very unnatural pattern was foreseen by the prophets centuries before it occurred, as Rabbi Berger points out. To give you a brief synopsis,
0: Ezekiel chapter 20 is talking about the history of the Jewish people in the prophetic sense. Usually, history talks about the past. The Jewish prophets have a very strange way of talking about Jewish history. They talk about the future. And so Ezekiel chapter 20 talks about what will happen to the Jewish people in the future. But at verse 31, all of a sudden the prophet kind of loses his temper and says, "Vani Edro Yisrael. God says, will you, will you investigate me, O house of Israel? Chayani, as I live, says God, I will not be investigated by you. What does an investigation mean? God is saying here, see, until now the prophet said, you're going to go astray. If you follow other gods, God will chase you out of the land. You're going to suffer persecution. And all of a sudden he says, shall I be investigated by you? What does investigation mean? It means that one day the, Israel, the Jewish people are going to look at God and say, hey, We're going to put god under a microscope like we do with the bacteria and figure out how to immunize ourselves away from him you know see how he works and see whether we can deal with this problem get out from under let's face it of all the terrible things that anti-semites have ever said about the jews tell me do you ever think that any you'll ever read a piece of anti-semitic literature that says the following we hate the jews because they're stupid people they're unintelligent no that even the anti-semites don't get away with drinking their blood and poisoning their wells maybe but to say that we they hate Jews because they're stupid, that's really going too far. Right? They, that's not believable. What's this prophet saying? He's saying, one day you're going to use your intelligence to try to figure out from, how to get out from under it. You investigate God and say, hey, I got it. The dislike of the unlike will drop our differences. So the prophet says, will I be investigated by you, house of Israel? By my life, says God, I will not be investigated. For that which comes into your mind, it shall never be. That which you say, let us be like the nations, like the families of the lands, serving wood and stone... As I live, says God, with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and with outpoured fury, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the lands in which you were scattered with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and with outpoured fury. Then I will bring you into the wilderness of the nations, where I, where I will enter into judgment with you face to face. Just as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the desert wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you. A very strange thing, the prophet says. He says it in a number of places, but nowhere so stark as here. One day you're going to try to investigate God to figure out how to get out from under it. You're going to say, we'll do it by becoming like all the families of the world, like the nations. We'll serve their gods. God said, it will never happen because it's at that time that you'll be driven out totally. where did the prophet get this concept? Didn't he study history and find that the more that a nation becomes like another nation, the more they're accepted, the better they're accepted? Where did he get this strange concept? That the Jews, the more they say, we will drop our differences and become like the majority, it's precisely then that they're driven out. Oh, if he has a concept of a God controlling history, who's saying that a nation that is eternal has to have a reaction different than all others, that would make sense. But a nation like all other nations, why should our becoming like them mean we'll be driven out? For every other nation, becoming like the majority culture means to be more accepted.
1: The question of the indestructible nature of the Jew seems puzzling enough in itself. But when we continue to the categories that follow, we confront even greater difficulties, because the areas seem to be mutually contradictory. Rabbi Berger continues. Page A9
0: talks about the exile and worldwide dispersion of the Jews. You yourselves I will scatter among the nations at the point of my drawn sword, leaving your countryside desolate, your cities in ruins. Paragraph 4. God will bring you and your king to whom you have set over yourselves to a nation which you and your fathers have not known. There you will serve other gods of wood and stone. Next page, page A10. Paragraph 7. Then they will know that I am God when I scatter them among the nations, and disperse them over foreign lands. There are two basic parts to the idea. Not only were the Jewish people told that they would be exiled from the land of Israel, but they'd be scattered around the world. Some people try to make the point that maybe... When were the Jews first exiled out of the land of Israel? Anybody know? Around 586, before the Common Era, the Babylonians destroyed the Temple and exiled us from Judea. So some would say oh maybe that's the period of time that this was written that god said we'd be exiled and put it into the bible there's only one trouble at the time of the babylonians we were taken in exile from judea and taken as a unit to babylon we weren't scattered across the nations far from it we had an autonomous self-ruling body in babylon until we came back part of us came back to build the second temple but the bible says we'll be scattered around the four corners of the globe What prophet would be so stupid as to say that, when if he's writing it as a result of the Babylonian exile, that's the opposite of what happened in Babylon. We're only scattered across the four corners of the globe during the Roman exile. The Romans destroyed the temple in the year 70 of the common era, and after that the Jews are dispersed all over. And nobody argues that the Bible was written later than that. Does anybody know when we have an absolute record of a foreign culture coming into this area and testifying to the existence of the Bible as we have it now? Which was the first culture to translate the Bible in it's entirety? Anybody know? The yeah, the Greeks, the Septuagint. Around the year 250 before the Common Era, they translated the Bible. There are translation differences, but no verse or chapter differences. The, Septu- the Greeks translate the Bible. It's clear that from then on, no Jew can tamper with it and put in new Hebrew parts, because then it would disagree with the Greeks. Septuagint, which was written in the year 250 before the Common Era, the Greeks themselves testified that the Bible was already known as the ancient books of the Israelites that they claimed they got from God at Sinai. So we know that at the very latest date that we know there could be no tampering is the year 250. Centuries later, the Romans come to disperse us around the world. The Bible says it will not only be taken in exile, but will be scattered around the globe. Why did the prophets write? That the Jews of all people... Keep in mind that exile is a very rare thing. If you look at what happens to nations when they're conquered, they just stay where they are and they're swallowed up as they are. They're not dispersed in general. And yet the prophet said, not only will they be in exile, but dispersed over the four corners of the globe. Not, but not only should we ask, how did they know, but doesn't that clearly contradict the concept of an eternal nation? If you are inventing a concept of what will happen to the Jews, isn't it clear that how could you possibly say they will be eternal while they're scattered around the four corners of the globe? Scattering around the four corners of the globe is the one thing to guarantee that they'll disappear. You and I, whether we live in America or in England, our next-door neighbors may be descendants of the Edomites or the Ammonites or the Moabites, but they don't know it because once a a person gets a certain distance in place and a certain distance in time from where he originated, he loses that old identity and he just gains his new one. If you somehow foresee that this people will be eternal, isn't it clear that the last thing that could possibly happen to them is scattering over the globe where they'll lose their identity?
1: If the Jews will be exiled and dispersed, which would ordinarily ensure their disintegration, and yet they will continue to exist as an eternal people, perhaps we can find another factor that would make this possible. Perhaps they will be so beloved and respected throughout the nations that the world will enable them to maintain their identity despite their dispersal. But history shows that this was hardly the case.
0: Category number three is anti-Semitism. The statement is made to the Jewish people throughout the prophets that what they are going to undergo in their exile is continued persecution and being chased from place to place. Paragraph 3 says, Among those nations you will find no repose, not a foot of ground to stand upon. For there the Lord will give you an anguished heart and wasted eyes and a dismayed spirit. You will live in constant suspense and stand in dread both day and night, never sure of your existence. In the morning you will say, Would that it were evening. In the evening you will say, Would that it were morning. For the dread that your heart must feel and the sight that your eyes must see. The Bible says that when the Jewish people are in exile, they will have, be the most major source of persecution and hatred. The, another verse in the Torah says, Does anybody know in Hebrew what a mashal is? A metaphor. You will be a metaphor for persecution for the entire world. The history of what happens to you will be an example of what happens to people who are persecuted. No, you'll be an, an eternal nation, in spite of being spread around the whole world, that you won't disappear, in spite of the fact that you'll be subject to the greatest persecution possible. And by now, by the 20th century, we understand what that means. The universality, just briefly, it goes through, we'll only go through the statement of categories on page A11. The universality of anti-Semitism, that is to say, it doesn't matter where one happens to be, There, there is anti-Semitism. The intensity of anti-Semitism, it's not that I resent these people so I won't give him a job. It's the attempt to kill people, men, women and children, because they're Jewish. Not that, well, they're not going to marry my daughter so I won't invite them to my wedding. So the intensity of how the world treats the Jews. The longevity, the continuing action. They just continued century after century after century. And number four, the irrationality. The absurd things that are said to justify anti-Semitism. We poison their wells, the same wells we drink out of. We drink their children's blood. Judaism is the only religion that forbids the drinking of any blood, human or animal. So they accuse the Jews of drinking their blood. The irrationality. It was pointed out, by the way, in a colloquium on anti-Semitism that was sponsored a few years ago by President Herzog of the State of Israel. There was a paper submitted by Professor Michael Curtis of Rutgers University, who identified best what we mean by the irrationality of anti-Semitism.
1: For the continuation of this program, please turn over the cassette. (laughs)
2: P-p-p-p <laughs>
0: which he said, the uniqueness of anti-Semitism, because keep in mind, all peoples can be hated by different groups, but the uniqueness of anti-Semitism is that no other people in the world have been charged simultaneously with alienation from society and with cosmopolitanism. That is, At the same time, if you're alienated, how can you be accused of being cosmopolitan? If you're cosmopolitan, how are you accused of being alienated from society? With being capitalist exploiters and also revolutionary communist agitators. Again, we live in a world where people accuse Jews of being both the capitalists and the communists. There's an excuse mechanism where whatever you hate, the Jew is that. And it doesn't matter if it's happening at the same time. He goes on and says, for example, the Jews are accused of having a materialist mentality and at the same time of being a people of the book, at the same time with being cowardly pacifists, with being a chosen people and also having an inferior human nature, with both arrogance and timidity, with both extreme individualism and with communal adherence, with being guilty of the crucifixion of Christ and at the same time held to account for the invention of Christianity. The irrationality that we mean is that whatever happens to be going on that you don't like is automatically tagged on the Jews. And, of course, the Jews being on both sides like any other people, some being timid, some being arrogant, some being communist, some being capitalists But, no, you use that example of saying that's what the Jews are as a whole.
1: Despite this relentless persecution, the prophets foresaw that the Jews would remain an eternal nation, scattered though they would be among the Gentiles. How could they concoct such an unlikely scenario Rabbi Berger continues.
0: I can figure out why one additional point could perhaps keep the Jewish people alive. Can you come up with a nation who still has a, a similar national concept of self as they had for thousands of years? China, Japan, India. But Japan, of course, being an island, they weren't conquered. But China and India were conquered and were overrun by other civilizations. How did they prevent their disappearance as a national identity? They were such huge numbers that when somebody invaded India, instead of them swallowing up Indians, it swallowed up them because there are so many of them. So one way you could foresee of how a nation could exist forever is to foresee that they will grow so large that they can never be totally dissolved. 2,000 years ago, which wasn't all that long ago in Jewish history, 2,000 years ago was kind of a middle period in Jewish history. The Roman Empire numbered 44 million people and of that number, 4 million were Jews. 9% of the Roman Empire was Jewish. 2000 years ago and that's separate from the fact there are many jews in babylon which were not part of the roman empire so if 2000 years ago the jews were around 10 percent of the roman empire at the present time out of a billion and a half people who formed the civilizations of the roman empire we could picture one and a half billion ten percent 150 million oh, 150 million jews it's very hard to dissolve such a big group not as big as the chinese but still big so you would think one way to foresee how this people will survive is by continually growing just in the same proportion they are to the rest of humanity they will be such a big group so they won't be able to be swallowed up how many jews are there in fact in the world the number is generally given between 12 and 14 million and most people in their secret loans would admit that there's a lot of overblowing of the numbers for political reasons especially in democracies where the number of voters you have determine your power as to how many jews there are in the world but let's say 12 to 14 million jews instead of the hundreds of millions that should be here, just based on our numbers 2,000 years ago. One would think that we would grow big in numbers and therefore we couldn't be destroyed. But page 822 tells us, the Torah says, nope, that won't happen. The Torah says, in paragraph 1, you will remain few in number among the nations to which God will lead you. Paragraph 2, a very similar way, you will remain few in number whereas you could have become as numerous as the stars of the heavens because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. That in discussing the Jewish people driven into exile, they will remain small in number. The graph on the bottom of the page shows it more graphically that whereas the Chinese, the Germans, etc., go up in number, the Jews keep on bouncing about along the bottom of the graph. It makes no sense to say somehow the Jew can't disappear. We see demographically the vast majority of the Jews who should be here are gone. Jews can disappear. So if ninety percent can disappear, so that it fulfills the biblical concept of remaining few in number, why can't it go to ninety nine point nine, hundred percent and disappear entirely? 50% of the Jews who should be here are gone, 80%, 90% are gone. If that number can disappear, why can't 100% disappear? And that's the end of it. No. Torah says, fewer number, you're going to bounce along the bottom of the graph, but you're an eternal nation. Doesn't matter if they hate you and persecute you, and you're driven to the four corners of the globe, you still maintain your identity. Who wrote this 3,000 years ago? What imbecile writes this, that this will happen to an eternal nation? giving all the conditions that would say why they would disappear, and subsequently is able to m- manipulate 3,000 years of history to maintain all these seemingly contradictory points.
1: With all these factors poised against the Jews, perhaps one might suppose the prophets envisioned a pathetic group of closeted individuals daily hanging in there until the end of time. But no, the prophets foresaw a people that would have a huge impact on the multitudes around them, an impact way out of proportion to their small numbers.
0: Category number 5 is a light to the nations on page 823. Light to the nations, a little more pleasant. And so a light to the nations to make a difference not only to themselves and their children and to their nation, but to make a difference to the world. Paragraph 4 is the statement in Zechariah chapter 8 of what will the time of the Messiah be like. What is the purpose of the coming of the Mashiach and the Messianic era? Paragraph 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men of every nationality, speaking different languages, will take hold of every Jew by the corner of his garment and say, "Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you." The central statement of what the coming of Mashiach is supposed to be like is that at that time the nations of the world will grab a hold of the Jews and tell us, "Teach us about God." Central purpose of why we exist. Well, Mashiach has not yet come. How do we see the lights of the nations? Why do we have this as one of our second seven categories? Because even though Mashiach hasn't come, what has happened to the world in the last 2,500 years since this was written is amazing. Let's face it, at the time that all these prophecies were written, there is nobody who believes in one God who spoke to Abraham and gave the Torah to the Jews except us. We are a small group in the land of Judea. The entire world believes in many pagan finite gods who don't have anything to do with teaching morality. And all of these civilizations are a heck of a lot richer and powerful, more powerful than us picture them the greeks the romans the persians the babylonians all rich and powerful civilizations they're all doing quite well with their own conception of god and they all conquer the jews and mock the jews for their absurd idea of one invisible infinite god and what did the prophets say don't worry just keep going don't run crusades to change them don't run inquisitions to change them just keep torah just keep doing this by keeping the mitzvot you'll bring the presence of god into the world and they will change they will come and learn about god from you nobody was doing it at the time what do we have now? We have literally half of the world, the half which is the most powerful, the Christian and Muslim world. And who are they? They are people whose ancestors were Greek and Roman and Persian and Egyptian pagans. And what are they now? They're Christians. They are stating, as, what is a Christian really saying when he says, I'm a Christian? What he's really saying is, my ancestors were Greek and Roman pagans, or Persian, or Babylonian, or French. They all worshiped trees and pigs and stones, and they all did quite well. But I'm a Christian, I hereby declare that they were all wrong, and the Jews that they persecuted were correct. There is a God who spoke to Abraham and gave the Torah to the Jews, and that is the foundation of all knowledge." Well, we know that in hindsight, where did the prophets get that understanding? That the world will come to understand about its central conceptions of God from you, because there is no monotheism in the world that isn't based directly and admittedly on the Jewish statement of God giving the Torah to the Jewish people. Where do they get this understanding? And do you realize how severely this contradicts the anti-Semitism prophecies? Anti-Semitism says you will have the most worst persecution and hatred of any nation on the globe. And light to the nation says they nevertheless will be changed based on your ideas. If somehow you foresee they're going to be a light to the nation, that the nations will accept their views of God, it must be you foresee that they will be so respected for their ideas and loved. Or if somehow you see there'll be anti-Semitism, they're so viciously hated, isn't it obvious that their ideas will be the last ones that people will take as their own ideas? Why would you foresee that all the civilizations that hate them and persecute them will nevertheless say no to what their fathers and grandfathers told them about their gods and accept instead the central concept of the Jew?
1: In addition to Jewish people in the religious sense, many have commented on the disproportionate effect which Jews have had on the secular arena.
0: The fact that in the last 150 years, many Jews dropped Torah and became secular. But nevertheless, the concept of the leadership of the Jewish people doesn't disappear even though Jews are secular. Who is going to be there in a, such a disproportionate number, founding social movements, an anti-war movement, a communist movement, founding leaders in science and medicine and mathematics? And in one way, the secular contribution is even more astonishing than a religious one. Because when a secular Jew wants to make it in the Gentile world, the one thing he wants the Gentiles to believe is that there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles. A Jew drops his Judaism and becomes a leader in the secular world. What he really wants people to believe is that there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles. And after 150 years, we look, stand back and look at the effect of the Jews in the secular like a sore thumb, an amazing effect. What a disproportionate influence these people have. Each one individually desperately wanted to establish the concept that the Jews are no different. And their effect is how different the Jews are. There was a book written by Ernest Vanden Haag called The Jewish Mystique. And Vanden Haag himself, by the way, is not Jewish. Uh, he wrote about the Jewish mystique, and he said, In the last 150 years of Western civilization, there are four human beings we can picture in Western civilization whose thinking shaped the direction that the world is going. The four names he came up with is Marx, Freud, Einstein, and Darwin, which he pointed out that of those four, three of them are Jews, not only Jews, but they came out to the scene within only decades after Jews were first allowed into universities to study. To which I remember hearing once a very famous rabbi saying, isn't it amazing that the four major minds that shaped the Western world, of those four, Marx, Freud, Einstein, and Darwin, three of them are Jewish, Marx, Freud, and Einstein. And the fourth one, Darwin, was mistaken.
2: (laughs) But we'll hold that off.
0: But the idea of the secular effect on the nations both in religious terms of the huge masses of the world who understand the central concept of reality is that there's an infinite god who spoke to abraham and gave the torah to the jews or even its secular concept that even when jews drop torah the disproportionate effect they have in terms of leading the world
1: this concept of light to the nations is so contradictory to the concept of anti-semitism that they will be hated and persecuted where did the prophets get such an illogical idea What possessed them to create such irrational predictions? Rabbi Berger goes on to the final two categories. The sixth category is a more specific one.
0: On page 824, it's the idea of the interdependency of the nation and the land. The nation of of Israel to the land of Israel. Now we know that um, the land of Israel itself was known to be a fertile land for millennia. What was this part of the world called? The The fertile crescent that Israel was part of. And so we see we're not going to read them all but paragraph one and two on page 824 talks about how the bible refers to the land of israel as a good land and if we go in the bottom of the page to paragraph four we see that as late as the first century of the common era when josephus wrote about the jewish wars he wrote for the whole area is excellent for crops or pasturage and rich in trees of every kind so that by its fertility it invites even those least inclined to work on the land the land of israel was a very fertile land not only when god gave us the land but a thousand years later when the romans came in the first century now, can anyone give me a good secular reason as to why ancient civilizations would want to conquer this piece of real estate? It was the center of the ancient world. It controlled the trade route from Europe to Africa and then from Asia to Europe and Africa. It was central. And therefore, if you want to control the trade route, you have to control this you want to control this area. Now if you have ancient civilizations coming to conquer the land of Israel, and the land is a fruitful area, it's a fertile land. What's your major interest as a civilization conquering this land? Your major interest is to keep the fertility of the land. Because if you want to station your armies here to control the territory, you need it to be able to grow crops and maintain a large garrison. So either you will enslave the people you conquer and tax them for their crops, or if they're really not behaving well, you'll throw them out and bring your own people in to settle the land. But the one thing you want to do is maintain the fertility, because you cannot control a desert. A desert can't be controlled by an army because it can't maintain the army there. And yet we see on page 825, the prophets tell us that when the Jewish people leave the land of Israel, the land becomes a desert. Paragraph 1, I will make the land a desolate waste so that its proud strength will cease. The mountains of Israel will be so desolate that no one will cross them. Then they will know that I am God when I make the land a desolate waste because of all the abominable things they have done. Paragraph 4, so devastated will I leave the land that your very enemies who come to dwell in it will stand aghast at the sight of it. Throughout the Bible, the discussion is very clear. When the Jews leave the land, it becomes a desert. Where do the prophets get this strange agricultural expertise that a fertile land, which is strategically valuable, will become a desert when the Jews leave? That's not what happens to a strategic land. What happened to the United States when a white man came over? He found a fertile land, so he chased the Indians away and took over. Did the fertility cease? No. They maintained the fertility. It doesn't stop being fertile. It doesn't stop giving off crops.
1: Evidence of the actualization of this bizarre prophecy is clearly documented from the time of the Roman exile of the Jews until a mere century ago. You'll find that
0: from the time the Jews left, the Romans tried to settle other peoples in this area as a Roman province. It failed. The land became a desert and did not maintain any population of any numbers whatsoever. And throughout the Middle Ages, the area was a desert. To the north of Palestine was Syria and to the south was Egypt, which had major numbers of people but in the middle was Palestine, which was desert. We can see on page 826, we have records from the 1800s. It was only a hundred years ago. In paragraph one, it's from a book that Mark Twain wrote when he was touring the world. Again, just follow along briefly, page 826, paragraph one. We traversed some miles of desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given wholly to weeds. A silent mournful expanse, a desolation is here that not even imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. We reached Tabor safely. Anybody know where Mount Tabor is? East of Haifa. The galley, Jezreel. We reached Tabor safely. We never saw a human being on the whole route. We pressed on toward the goal of our crusade, renowned Jerusalem. The further we went, the hotter the sun got the more rocky and bare, repulsive and dreary the landscape became. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. No landscape exists that is more tiresome into the eye than that which bounds the approaches to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is mournful, dreary, and lifeless. I would not desire to live here. It is a hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land. Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. Paragraph three, a book written exactly 100 years ago. Professor Sir John William Dawson, Modern Science and Bible Lands. Until today, remember he's writing this in 1888. He's now writing this as Zionist propaganda. Has no idea of what's gonna come in the future. He writes, until today no people have succeeded in establishing national dominion in the land of Israel. No national unity or spirit of nationalism has acquired any hold there. The mixed multitude of itinerant tribes that managed to settle there did so on lease as temporary residents. It seems that they await the return of the permanent residents of the land. Throughout the Middle Ages, the land was desolate, supported no population. At the time the Bible was written, it was fruitful, and it was a strategic land. If for somehow you foresee this strategic land is going to be conquered, the one thing you know is that it'll maintain its fruitfulness and be settled by others. No, the prophets say, When the Israelites leave, the land becomes a desert and will not go forth its fruit, and as a result, no major numbers will settle there. Where did they get this strange expertise? When a fruitful land that is also strategic should definitely draw other people when the Israelites are driven into exile.
1: But the prophet stated both the exile of the people and the desolation of the land would be limited in duration. Which brings us to the final stream of prophecy, the inevitable return of the people to their land.
0: Paragraph 1. The Lord your God will return you from captivity and have compassion on you. He will return and gather you from among all the nations. Paragraph 4. Thus says God, in this place of which you say how desolate it is, without man or beast, in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem, that are now deserted, without man or without inhabitant, without beast, there will yet be heard the sound of joy and the sound of gladness, the sound of bridegroom, the voice of the bride, etc. For I will restore this country as of old, says God. The statement of the prophet says, you are going to go into exile for a long period of time and it will become a total desert. But in the end you have to come back nothing stands in the way what about the fact that the land is a desert oh no paragraph six on page 829 to 36 says as for you o mountains of israel you will shoot forth your branches and bear you fruit for my people israel for their return is close at hand the statement of the prophet is that the land will be a desert as long as the jews are gone but the curse is lifted when it prepares for the jews to return and that's why the talmud tells us In paragraph 7 the Talmud tells us, don't try to figure years, when does the Messiah come, when is the return? Keep your eye on the land, because the land was cursed to be desolate. What happens to the land tells you when the end is near. Just to give us an idea of how absurd the concept is of a return. 140 years ago, when the Reform Movement was founded in Germany in the 1820s, 30s and 40s, one of the first basic elements of Jewish belief that they rejected is the concept of a return to the land of Israel. And they said, they had a banner heading of their doctrine, and words which obviously in hindsight grate upon our ears say, Germany is our fatherland, Berlin is our Jerusalem, because they understood better how the solution... Ridiculous! 1840, to think! Those guys making up this pious hope of return, isn't it obvious that here we are in 1840, how absurd it is to believe that we are one day going to be all settled as Jews in, in the land of Israel, in that desert in Palestine? Isn't it clear that they were how wrong they were? Here we are in Europe, it's obvious we're here to stay, look how well we're accepted. And so they reject the concept of return. Were they idiots? No. They were rationalists. They just didn't understand that there is a control of human history. There's a control of Jewish history. But to give us an understanding of how Judaism saw the context of Jewish history continuing, no matter what happens to be happening at any given time in history, just look at one additional paragraph. It's called The Prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones. Ezekiel is taken by God into a desert where he sees a bunch of dried bleached bones. And God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And he says, only you know God. And God says, call upon these bones to live. So Ezekiel calls on them to live. And the bones start coming together, bone upon bone. And flesh forms over them and blood and sinews and veins and skin. And they're actually whole bodies, but they're still dead. And God says to Ezekiel again, can the bones live? And Ezekiel says, well, by now perhaps he's a little more convinced, but still, uh, you know God. So he says, call on them to live. And Ezekiel calls on their souls to come. The wind comes and blows their souls into their bodies. And they stand up as living human beings. This is the vision Ezekiel had. What is the significance of the vision? The bottom of page 829. The significance is the irreversibility, the total inevitability of the redemption of the Jewish people, that nothing can get in the way. Paragraph 10. Son of man, God is speaking to Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They have been saying, Our bones are dried up, and our prophe- their hope is lost. We are cut off. Therefore, prophecy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, O my people, I will open your graves and have you rise from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from them, O my people. And I will put my spirit in you and you will live. You will revive. And I will settle you upon your land. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. I have promised and I will do it, says God. Central concept is that nothing gets in the way of the redemption of the Jewish people back to the land. And if they are dead and bones and bleached in the desert, then they're simply going to have to come back alive. It doesn't matter if the word disaster that hits the Jewish people is the end of their 2,000 years called the Holocaust. It's precisely three years later that it starts back. Nothing at all gets in the way of what God says is the necessary
1: requirement of Jewish history. The Midrash relates that the Roman Emperor Hadrian once remarked to the sage, Rabbi Yehoshua, Great is the lamb that survives among 70 wolves, a reference to the Jewish people, who, remarkably, survive among the 70 hostile nations. Rabbi Yehoshua corrected him, replying, No. Great is the shepherd who protects that sheep, And destroys those that rise against her. The combined phenomenon of the uniqueness of Jewish history and the amazingly accurate prophecies of the course of events which were to take place can lead us to only one conclusion. The history of the Jews is the product of design and the prophecies the holy words of the designer. Rabbi Berger concludes. Seven essential categories.
0: The eternity of the Jewish people. The exile and scattering over the world, in spite of what the latter will do to their eternity. The worst hatred of any nation, being few in number and yet remaining as a nation. A light to the nations, changing the world's view of self, of existence, of God, of religion, in spite of the fact that they're hated and persecuted, and such small numbers. The land of Israel, reacting to whether the Jews are there. When the Jews are gone, a fertile land becomes a desert. When the Jews come back, a desert becomes a fertile land. Seven categories where we have to ask ourselves, 3,000 years ago, who wrote these things? How did they know these things? And if they just made them up, how were they able to manipulate the next 3,000 years to carry them out? To give us an idea that it's not simply we who are looking at all this, that it's noticeable outside of the circle of those who are involved in Torah, I'd I'd like to read to you one final paragraph. It's from a book called The History of the Jews by Cecil Roth. Cecil Roth was a non-observant Jew who was a very famous history teacher in Oxford University. He wrote a book called The History of the Jews, 400 and some pages, and at the end of it, he finishes his book as follows. I'd just like to read a last paragraph. He writes as follows. Our survey of three and a half millennia of Jewish history is closed, but the story which we have set ourselves to tell is unending. Today, the Jewish people has in it still those elements of strength and of endurance, which enabled it to surmount all the crises of its past, surviving thus the most powerful empires of antiquity. Throughout our history, there have been weaker elements who have shirked the sacrifices which Judaism entailed. They've been swallowed up long since in the great majority. Only the more stalwart have carried on the traditions of their ancestors and can now look back with pride upon their superb heritage. Are we to be numbered with the weak majority or with the stalwart minority? It is, of course, for ourselves to decide. But from a reading of Jewish history, one factor emerges which may perhaps help us in our decision. The preservation of the Jew was certainly not casual he has endured through the power of a certain ideal based upon the recognition of the influence of a higher power in human affairs. Time after time in his history, moreover, he has been saved from disaster in a manner which cannot be described excepting as providential. This author has deliberately attempted to write this work in a secular spirit, but he does not think that his readers can fail to see in it on every page a higher imminence. What we're talking about here is not simply a study of Jewish history to see the past. It's perhaps to take use of the words of the philosopher Kierkegaard who said, Life can only be understood backwards, but it can only be lived forward. When in 1988 the Jewish people have to make their decisions of how to live their lives, and we ask the question, is everything random or is there a design? Is there a God who gave the Torah or did human beings just write it 3,000 years ago? We have to live our lives forward, but we can understand it backwards. We look back to get an understanding. Is it random or is it design? If I believe there is no God, who wrote these things, and how did they manipulate history to follow them? By looking backwards, we can gain confidence that our Torah is God-given, and that we can use it confidently to live our lives forwards, both as individuals and together as the Jewish people.
1: If you enjoyed this presentation, you'll be happy to know that Esha Torah College of Jewish Studies conducts ongoing programs worldwide to familiarize intelligent Jews with their rich heritage. For further information about upcoming discovery programs in your area, call our New York office at area code 212-643-8800. This cassette was recorded by Voices from Jerusalem, the recording studio that puts the depths of Torah at your fingertips. From thought-provoking presentations of the fundamentals of belief to advanced discussions of Sinaitic law, Voices from Jerusalem makes Torah values and wisdom available to searching Jews everywhere by some of the most exceptional speakers in the Jewish world today. If you are interested in obtaining a catalog listing the impressive array of titles on the gamut of Torah experience, write to Voices from Jerusalem, Post Office Box 14149, Old City, Jerusalem, or in the U.S. at 900 Forest Avenue, Lakewood, New Jersey, 08701. Shalom from Jerusalem.